and uh, I could see him picking up this large sort of stone boulder and he had it behind his back and I thought, any minute now, he's going to brain my assistant. (laughs) (laughs) How can I shut him up? (laughs) Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we are getting better acquainted with uh, Mum. My mum. Uh, Hello, Mum. Hello. The first question I always ask everybody, which is a very strange one to ask you, it must be, it's, I think it was really strange asking Dad, it's even stranger asking you. The first question that I ask everybody on the show is, um, how did you first meet me? <laughs> which is a very strange question. Well, I think ask. I first met you as a kicking baby in my tummy. Exactly, yeah. You were the most active of my three children, and uh, you seemed to be always kicking my stomach or some painful area of my my insides okay well sorry about that (laughs) can't do anything about it now um and the other question that i ask is uh what do you do now um well i suppose i'm retired but i don't know i don't feel retired i feel that i'm doing more than i've done in a long long time um i i do quite a bit of uh, child care i do um quite a bit of art in my studio space the last two weeks i have to say i've taken off for wimbledon being quite chilled out as it were very very reasonable indeed i should say as well we're in your in your back garden in bristol the uh sun is out it's very sunny early morning it's an early morning uh conversation and that's why the birds are in the background and we do have a rogue six-year-old who may have to, we may have to pause and edit out and stuff that may happen. The first thing I thought would be interesting to talk to you about really, I guess, is your career, but the parts of your career that I'm most interested in, because I have no exposure to them, because I wasn't really alive when you, when, when you did them, the things that sort of happened before I came along. Mm. So first off, you were a nurse, weren't you? That's right. I mean, when I left school, I, I, I took a very unfashionable gap. It wasn't quite a year. It was nine months doing odd jobs. Uh, and then after that, I started my nurse's training a little bit later than many people at 19. But I think that was quite beneficial because a lot of people are too young, really at 18, to start facing death and difficult issues of, of nursing, really. And what made you decide to become a nurse? I've always wanted to do nursing. My father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. And I suppose it was fairly ingrained in me that that, that might be something that I could do. I certainly played with all my teddies and dolls. You know, they were always ill and in hospital and losing limbs and having to have bandages and things like that. So I suppose from a very young age, I I always had this idea that I was going to be a nurse. But certainly, I suppose my sister having difficulties during her teenage kind of reinforced that because I felt that it was something that I could get involved with. What made you choose nursing rather than uh, being a doctor? Well, I suppose because I never thought of myself as being very intelligent. 
retrospectively looking back on my life I, I, I realise I've had a, had a slight dyslexia that made me quite late reading and writing I always thought of myself as a nice child but sick um, I was always struggling to get anywhere in any kind of class so I made myself into a nice personality in order to uh, manage in the school where I was where they were all going to Oxbridge Right. So as a result of that, I surprised my head teacher by getting three A-levels. She actually apologised to me after I, uh, I got them. That was in art, biology and geography, all to do with my drawing skills in some respect. But So it, it never seemed a possibility that I could go on further and do medicine. There were t- at, the, at the end of my nursing training, I, 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 I did kind of briefly did consider it but because I'd struggled so much with the academic side of uh, uh, of the uh, training I thought there's no possibility really. Okay and so you trained to become a nurse? Yes and um, then I then I, I I became a staff nurse um, I, I worked first of all in medical nursing which I suppose was my greatest interest and then I thought to become an all-rounder, I better do some surgical. So I, I did some work in the recovery ward, and that was quite interesting. And then I decided, while I was deciding where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do, I, I needed to actually sort of get some kind of nursing that had a community aspect to it, because I was, at that stage, either deciding to become a health visitor or... or, or um, to branch out and do social work. So I then went to Bart's Hospital to do a renal dialysis course, but they were very inefficient. And in order to employ me at the time I wanted to move over, they, they actually sort of put me in an angiocardiography section, which was very, very interesting, because that was the beginning of what now has become heart surgery without opening people up because it it was the very first experiments that people were doing of putting wires through arteries to actually affect the heart. Wow. Yeah and then I did renal dialysis and again that was that was very early in the dialysis. I mean when I actually went to the dialysis unit they were all very shocked that one of the original doctors had died because she contracted hepatitis through through the process of dialysis so we were very aware that we had to be very careful of blood and blood projects during our the very initial sort of very crude way that we did renal dialysis in those days uh, we actually had to build the kidney machines putting membranes on and then we taught the patients to do their own dialysis and they were trained to go home and dialyse at home after they'd been a period of time in hospital. Wow, that's amazing. So you became a nurse after your training. What was it like being a nurse? At What years were you a nurse? Well, I started my training in 1966, so I qualified three years later in 69. And then I was staffing and doing all these other jobs until about 
1972. In the end, I decided that I was going to apply for social work, but I had no idea what social work was. So it was quite an interesting project. And basically, I applied for the most prestigious uh, social work school in the country and got accepted for an interview, which was an all-day thing. And I think I lasted about two hours and then was kicked out because I knew nothing about social work. But the experience of going there made me realise what I didn't know. And so then I started a process of actually finding out what social work was all about. So when I went for my next interview, I had some clue and my application was better. And I think... I was geared to the day that we we had. And then you became a social worker after that. And your years of nursing, what was it like being a nurse in the 60s? It was very hard work. I mean, when I first started, for instance, I mean, we still had to do a bit of cleaning around the wards and there was always the sort of sister coming round once a week and we used to have to pull all the beds out and we used to have to clean behind the beds and, 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 and that kind of thing. We also had to do a bit of cooking, we had to do breakfast. I used to pride myself on being able to do a proper boiled egg for breakfast in the morning. So it was very hands-on in those days. And we used to pride ourselves that, that, that none of our patients got bed sores. And when you compare that with nowadays, when so many people get bed sores as a regular thing, it, it seems quite shameful for me. Because they've elevated the idea of nursing to such an extent that they're nearly doctors. But they don't seem to have anyone who's at the basic level who actually really cares about skin care and people and feeding and all those kind of things which I think are absolutely essential. I think nowadays they're beginning to try to draw it back. But they've gone so far in, in the other direction it's difficult to actually move the onus back. To, to basic nursing and basic things with people. Was When you were nursing, was that when you first kind of came into contact, as you sort of suggested earlier, with death and with things like that? Yes, I mean, certainly that was always a sort of element, but I suppose because I concentrated more on medical wards and things like that, I mean, obviously death was more likely on a medical ward. And, and in fact, we used to have all sorts of ways of thinking about what was the best thing for the patient. Per- patient knew that he or she was dying. We would try to discuss with them and, and try to discuss how they wanted to finish their lives, whether they wanted to finish it at home. And in those days, that was very unusual. I think that was the beginning of the idea of community care support and the Macmillan nursing service was not nearly as widely available. And But we were beginning to think in those kind of ways. The hospice movement came in during my nursing training as well, and that was all very new and hadn't started until quite a late stage. And so we don't realise how new the concepts of dying at home really are but it was just beginning to come in then. There was also a different attitude to death I think. The old adage that used to be said thou shalt not kill but thou shalt not strive to keep alive was still there at the beginning of my nursing training so you used to think well if somebody really wants to die let's help them die in the most reasonable way that you can and so at the beginning of my training you didn't have to resuscitate i mean yes we always had this form not for resuscitation but i think increasingly there came into the thing the idea that you have to resuscitate and that you have to do extreme measures to keep people alive 
I mean, there were some shocking aspects, I suppose, in, in terms of what we know nowadays. I mean, I'm quite convinced that I saw some evidence of doctors giving very high doses of morphine at the end to sort of get the pain down, but also one suspects to kill the person a bit, bit quicker. Right. So there was almost an element of, of euthanasia there, but <clears throat> it was never discussed. It yeah. was it was never to the front of any things. But I think I think it was possibly there. And I think probably the most shocking element of nursing in those days was actually what happened to abortions, um, natural abortions. I'm mostly talking about because they were considered not viable lives. You know, the babies were actually put down a masher. Oh, God. Yeah, and, and there was no idea of uh, a burial or, or, or anything. And, and no real thought about the grieving process that obviously the mother had to go through. Unfortunately, mm. all those things have changed. But um, I don't think the general public are aware of how quickly things have changed. We're, we're only talking 40 years ago. I mean, that's quite interesting because it's... You're sort of saying that, that now when you look at nursing now, it's lost many things. You're also describing the way that the medical profession has improved in, in other areas. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean <coughs> yeah. sort of kind of what you hope is that the pendulum swings and then eventually ends in the middle, don't you? I mean, that's, that's where you hope, where it's got the best of both sides. I think what I'm saying is that we, we need more holistic medicine. I mean, to be honest, I mean, that's what you seem to get now. When you go into hospital, I know when I've been in for operations, the, the nursing staff are asked to do what they call a care plan. And basically that's meant to be the holistic assessment of where you are in time and space, what you expect from your operations, what you understand from the dangers of what's happening and what's your lifestyle around it to support you when you go out and those kind of things. So I suppose, I mean, they are moving a bit towards a more holistic thing, but I think that was always kind of like my thing that I, I wanted to see the holistic side of things uh, covered. I think I was lucky where I trained because I think, I mean you, you always think this, but I mean I think the training was very good because we were trained in some ways to look out for, for signs and symptoms that doctors might miss. When I was doing my social work training I did some agency work to make some money and I went to uh, another hospital that was the first computerized hospital in the in the country and to be honest they'd got everything wrong about computers and it was kind of a mess because the computer plan was a week behind what the patient needed at the moment so you actually had to ignore it if you were going to do proper nursing practice but you know it took a long time for people to, and I still think that the National Health Service struggles with computers. Very distantly I know someone who's a computer technician in a hospital mm. and it, it was quite funny hearing him talk about it and you suddenly realised that a computer technician in an office if the computers crash well the computers crash what have you lost the spreadsheet whereas if the computers crash in a hospital you might lose lives and yes. that was suddenly amazing to me that this computer technician <laughs> yes. is, is, is responsible for saving yeah. lives as much as anybody else in a hospital. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's something that's true about a hospital, that every worker in that hospital collectively helps to save those lives. Yes. It's something I think that's quite 
forgotten about when people are talking about the public services at the moment and they're saying, oh, well, we need to cut the public services, computer technicians or nurses or, you know, the, the cleaners on the ward. Those people are part of that important system that mm. keeps us all uh, alive and going and gives us the things that we need as a society. So, Well, I think with MRSA, probably the most important person was the cleaner. Yeah. And you know you almost have to sort of turn everything on its on its head because if you don't get the cleaning right yeah and those cleaning staffs are, are probably badly paid yeah. and they are probably badly trained and they are quite often i believe farmed out privately i mean i don't know if that's happening in the hospitals yet but that's certainly the model that's been happening in the public sector for years is that yeah. we're starting to farm out more and more things to private companies well i mean it, it actually started in my hospital because it was my hospital was always ahead of itself we actually saw the changeover from ward staff to agency people uh, well, no, it wasn't agency at the beginning. It was a hospital cleaning service. And then that hospital cleaning service in, 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 in later years became put out to tender. So obviously then it became agency. Did you see ghosts when you were in it? <laughs> well, I, I never saw a ghost. But I actually came to believe in ghosts in a strange kind of way, which was a bit weird. I was working on one of the wards uh, St George's High Park corner that was known to have a ghost and I kind of knew this in the back of my mind but I wasn't into the Ouija board and all the things that some of the nurses certainly were into and kind of like kept it at arm's length really but I had this particular patient who had an aortic aneurysm in those days you couldn't do anything about it you couldn't operate you couldn't do anything and basically it got to the stage where there was so much pressure on the side of the artery which is just by the heart that actually it would burst and the patient would die and very often one of the signs that that things were going very very bad because it might be that a clot was going up from the legs through the renal system, people wanted to go to the toilet just before they died. And then the clock would make its way up and do its damage and the person died. But this particular patient, I mean, I knew she was very ill and I sort of came to see if she was all right and sort of plumped up her pillows and made sure she was comfortable and said, would she like a bedpan? And she said, I've just had a bedpan. And I said, oh, all right, okay. And she said, lovely person gave bedpan. And she described her as being in a blue-grey uniform. And she couldn't see her feet. And I thought, oh, that's very odd. Um, but anyway, I just sort of made her comfortable and, and whatever. Um, and then I went out to the sleuth. And a bedpan seemed, seemed to be warm and having just gone through the cleaner. That's odd. Then I thought, oh, someone's playing a joke in the next ward. So I went through to the next ward and said, that was a really funny joke. Thanks ever so much for giving my patient a bedpan. And they genuinely looked extremely, where are you coming from? We, you know, we weren't joking. And I don't think it was good acting. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know, she's got a bedpan. Uh, but anyway, when I came back, uh, she'd slipped away peacefully in her sleep. So you, you think that it, a ghost brought that bedpan to that? Well, 
the ghost stories where the grey lady visited people who were about to die and, and, and made them die happily. Okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't I know don't one know way or another. I don't, I don't know one way or another. But the other, <coughs> the other story, the same ward, was when we had someone who accidentally left on the, <coughs> the gas cooker in the kitchen. And in those days, gas was actually lethal. If, if you've got too much proportion of the gas, uh, they've changed the constituents in gas now, so it's not so lethal. But what actually happened was the window. Now, this is bearing in mind that it's a really old building and a massive window, I suppose about five, six foot high and about three foot wide. And I mean, I physically couldn't open and shut it. But this window seemed to have been rammed down as though it was open from the outside. And basically the amount of air that came into the kitchen probably saved our lives. And that's just weird. That is odd. <laughs> but I mean maybe it could it have fallen down on its on its own? I don't know. But you feel but you felt that it was some other presence. Just seeing yeah. Someone had saved our lives. Oh, and 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 the, and, the, and the lift seemed to go up and down without anyone in it. It's a, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, a lot. I think a lot of people who work with the dying believe in sort of ghosts and have come to or come to believe in in things that you can't see. It's a, it's a strange strange thing. I don't really know. I mean. Either it's true or it's I, I don't know whether it's true that, because it's everything can be explained. Yeah, but I mean, it might be something about that kind of proximity to death that makes you kind of come to those kind of conclusions. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're probably right. You became a social worker. What in the seventies would this be? Yeah, yeah. I I I started my social work training in 1972. And basically, this was a changeover period between two distinct systems. Up until that period of time, the majority of social workers had been untrained. They didn't work generically. They, they actually worked in, in three different areas, which was mental health, the welfare section, and childcare. So the three actual se sections. And they decided to change this to make social work generic, which meant that you would do a bit of all three, and they decided to train social workers in, in that respect. So when I actually qualified after two years training, I could choose whether I wanted a childcare or welfare certificate or a mental health certificate uh, as my qualification, or the, the certificate of qualification in social work which was the first generic qualification unfortunately I chose that because nobody would have a clue what the old qualifications would, would have been unfortunately you know that went on for a few years and I mean it's interesting they've gone back now they've changed completely from from what was then the Seabone report which actually sort of wanted to, uh, people to walk, work across the board and then now they've gone back to specialising. Yeah. So, you know, I've seen full circle. But the interesting thing, again, was because it was kind of new, they had sort of introduced the first intake team system into social work. So 
My first job was actually a generic intake. And when I left social work, they had introduced intake systems into social work. And I thought, well, you know, been here before. Um, interesting. But of course not. Well, no, I suppose it would have been generic because you can't actually do intake um, unless you just do a quick assessment, even if it's just on the phone. When you talk about intake, what does that mean? Right, well, it, it was a special team that was set out to do assessments, to do emergency work. And then when we'd worked for about six weeks with the situation, we would pass it on to a long-term team. They would work in more depth. Okay. If that was necessary. I mean, if we kind of like sorted it out in the six weeks, then So closed. it's like a kind of, a, like a triage system sort of thing? Yes. For, but for social yes. work. So you, you see it, then you assess it, then you pass it on to somebody. You decide how, how important or how bad it is, and then you pass it on to the relevant team to deal with that. Yeah, that's right. And they've reintroduced that kind of approach now. Yeah. I guess the thing is that we keep having, when we have different governments, you have different approaches to these mm. things and different mm. councils have different approaches to these things. It's very hard to have a sort of, uh, to not have this switching between different stances in, in, in the public services. It's a strange, strange thing. So why social work? I don't know really. I mean, as I say, I, I just had my, my idea that I wanted to work in the community. And strangely, I thought I would have more opportunity in social work than in health visiting. I'm not sure in the long term whether it was the right decision. Uh, but having said that, um, I think that having a mixture of um, abilities to assess medically and socially um, and not be on one side of the coin or the other all the time and being able to switch between the two is actually something which is very valuable when you're assessing people. Okay. Uh, because you you probably need a broad spectrum. You need to know where someone is medically before you can actually say that this is socially the right thing for someone to do. Uh, and certainly in my last job, I mean, it was very useful being dual qualified because I would get things said to me that I thought, would re ring medical bells okay. and I would be able to query them, particularly if someone didn't seem to have followed the protocol that they had to. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about nasty bugs and things like that because a lot of nurses were, understandably because of the pressure of politics, trying to get people very quickly out of hospital and I would say no. You know, we're not putting this person into a home where they can infect the whole home. You know, stop and think. You need to clear them of this. It's different when we send them home into their own home, because obviously, you know, they they're, they're not likely else. to infect yeah. anyone else. Yes, if we can get someone home, then maybe they can go out with their MRSA with proper medical supervision. But if you're talking about putting them in, 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 in an older person's home, Oh, no, 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 no. They don't want superbugs, thank you very much. I wonder why. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're struggling in hospitals. Yeah. You know, we don't want social care to be in the same position as the hospitals. It's interesting that you've sort of been on both sides of that of that situation as well. You've yeah. been the nurse and mm. then you were the social worker that kind of came into contact with the nurses in those kind of situations. When you went into social work, you sort of 
took a a kind of career approach of five years on and five years off, didn't you? Something like that. That you would be in the system as a social worker and then you would go and do something that was in the charity sector or uh, that sort of thing. Would you say that's right or fair? No, well, no. I mean, I was never very good at going up the career. I mean, my first job, as I say, was in an intent team. I was one of the first qualified people. And the, that my then senior manager, who, who actually supervised me, said that if I wanted to, I could go right to the top in management very quickly, you know, almost like a, a, a quick shoot up. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to work with people. Well, I mean, that would be because you were the first, when you said you first, the first qualified people before that, there was no qualification for mm. social work. Mm. Then it became a, 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 an academic thing to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. Had to get a, a, an academic qualification in social work. And so when you came into the service, I guess you would have been a little bit like it's like somebody who's gone to university who joins the police force. They get very quickly yeah. up to yeah. the top of the police force. Yeah. Or, or the army is probably the same as well. Yeah. Um, so they were sort of saying you could get very up to the top, hmm. which you eventually, though. Near yeah. the end of the career, you were at least in management. Oh, you? I know. I don't say you liked it. <laughs> but, I mean, that's not senior management. No, 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 no. no. You I never... mean, she was talking real senior management. In, in, and, in fact, I had a colleague who was, oh, bless him, was absolutely hopeless at social work. He'd come out, he was a graduate kind of person and hadn't quite got the common sense that, that some people do. Mm. And uh, I remember him coming back pleased as punch, rubbing his hands. I've taken my first child into care. And I said, oh, right, have you? Great. Uh, You know, where's the paperwork? Paperwork? You have to do paperwork? I said, right. Um, So you've taken this child into voluntary care and you haven't got the signature of the mother saying that she agrees to it. And he said, yeah. And I said, tell you what, get in your car, because he had a car, I didn't have a car. Drive as quickly as you can to that mother. This is the form. Get it signed. (laughs) This placement is illegal. And until you get that sign formed, you know, (laughs) let's pray. (laughs) So off he went. And fortunately, you know, the mother had agreed to her child going into care and signing the form. But it was kind of like, oof, like that, as far as I was concerned. I don't think he ever quite saw the seriousness of it. And I, I think when I turned round, he got a fairly top job. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> so he, he he's probably up safer up there than he was as a social worker. But then, isn't it the, the, the case in the, in the public <laughs> sector is that the people who want to make a difference and want to help people don't rise to the top because the higher up you get, the less contact you have with people yeah I mean that's the that's the thing I mean I think towards the end of your career in social work you didn't have as much contact with the public in the way that you had before and I don't think it was as satisfying it paid Mm. more money but it it wasn't as satisfying so but but you didn't so you didn't go right to the top you you refused that kind of Faustian part well I did lots of sideways moves I mean always I think one step like one step up but sideways normally. That's how you ended up getting gradually. Well, I only went a few steps up. Really. Yeah, okay, a few steps up. But yeah. But you you swapped between the government-funded public sector working for the government 
and working for independent, either charity sector or for other people, didn't you? I mean, yeah. Why, why did you do that flip flop? Well, it, it kind of started, I suppose, in my social work training because um, I, one of my placements um, was a childcare placement in the Albany in, in, in Deptford, and that was in that kind of category, I suppose. I don't know what, quite whether you'd say it was voluntary or whatever, but they had lots of services uh, for a very deprived area of London, which kind of supplemented the, the services of the local authority. So having started off that, I mean, I, I actually did, I was working with teenagers, so I worked in teenage clubs and was asked while I was doing that if I would start an adventure playground. So we kind of went into sort of, uh, you know, how to do it and everything like that. And we actually started an adventure playground in New Cross. And that was part of my placement. And obviously I wrote it up as a project and blah, 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 blah. And, yeah submitted for, for coursework and whatever um, but obviously I got a great interest in, in working with teenagers in a different way because you could actually work with them without the, the full weight of the law or anything else you actually could make relationships with these kids and and try and help them in what I felt was a more meaningful way really than, than what was available for you through the official channels that's right so very early on, so that was in my training, and after that I, I, I did a placement in the probation service, which of course they don't do now, they don't do crossovers between social work and probation, but in those days they did. So I, I actually did a, a placement there, and obviously I, I had a lot more experience with offenders at that stage, and again, of trying to work positively. Yeah. But of course we had the luxury in those days of there being jobs. So in fact, a lot of your work as a probation officer was to actually get these offending teenagers into work. And once you've done that, they sometimes change their lives around. I mean, obviously not inevitably, but more often than not, that when they didn't have to get their money through stealing, they actually sort of settled down and changed their lifestyle and that kind of thing. So I suppose I, I, I was always very geared towards childcare, strangely enough, at the beginning of my career. Of course, after doing about nine months in intake, the Albany asked me to come and run the adventure playground. And so I decided, so it wasn't five years on and five years off, it was nearly a year. <laughs> and then I did a year's, of, no, I did probably did a couple of years of adventure playground work. So then it became a full-time job. And I think I was the first person, probably the only person in the country who's ever been employed by it. A tenants association. That's right. So it was the tenants association, and well, was it Lewisham? It was in Lewisham, but as I say, the um, estate where I was working was in New Cross. In New Cross, and they, imp so the tenants council, the, uh, they would have had a council. They had an association, association. and the tenants association became my boss. And they, you had a, an area of land in the middle of the estate? Well, they were in the process of, of knocking down an awful lot of houses and it was in a, a sort of development area, as they would call it now. So there was a lot of em empty space. So we had a large area that actually had one remaining house on, on the actual site. And we always called that the playground house, but it was, it was actually um, inhabited by Scotters right. uh, who, who were Irish in origin and they had about eight children 
and they were kind of living on the playground house in the, in the corner of this sort of plot, and it hadn't been um, demolished. Was this in the 70s? Or 60s? Yeah, 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 70s. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we had this really interesting uh, situation, and I mean, I think I might have known the family. I mean, the interesting was there was a bit of crossover. Some of the families I might have known in, in social services terms and actually worked when I was in the social work department. And then I started working with, without the constraints of social services. So I, th I think I knew that most of the, the children in, in the playground house were enuretic because I had been involved in getting um, mum sorted out with kind of new bedding and... and was enuretic? Oh, uh, bedwetters. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, so, so she was living in a squat uh, with rigged electricity and difficult hot water situation. Uh, in the corner of your playground? Yeah, with, with all, all, all... Most of her male children being bedwetters. Oh. So it was kind of very like... Hard. Very hard. Lot. So you were in charge of, a, of, of an adventure playground? Yeah. In the middle of a council estate, well, or by the side of a council estate. It was, whatever. yeah, there was kind of like a, a, a road in between, so it was sort of over that. But it, it, when you're talking about council estate, we're talking t tower blocks. Yeah. Proper 70s tower blocks. Yeah. Which were really high. Yeah. They, they might still be there, because I, I think they did start doing some green sites stuff. Evidence has been that, you know, if you do some green sites around... Uh, you, you can alleviate some of the, the slightly, worst bits. yeah. But there's still those tower blocks. I mean, but they evil. they had sort of a tower blocks for for unmarried mothers, you know. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. Or was it just, just put them all together? Why it, don't we? You know, that was the official policy, right? Well, I don't the, know, but that's how it seemed to it, turn that's out. That's how it turned out. The chair of the tenants association, who was um, a binman they would have been called then um, very enterprising men but he actually lived in one of the there were some nice houses with little, tiny little gardens in parts of the estate it wasn't all tower blocks yeah. but the tower blocks were the ones in the most trouble I suppose and you, what did you what was your role as a, running that playground well what was the playground obviously to like? open the playground during all the holiday periods um, so when the ch children went in, in school and evenings as well right so it was full time we were very much geared towards when the children weren't in school but interestingly enough i mean i got referred from social services somebody who was a school refuser and i was asked if i could do do a project with him to try to get him back into some kind of a state where he might go back to school so the, the job actually was, was very very flexible in those kind of ways and and that's and that's interesting. But what was the everyday like? Like what was it? What was I mean? As far so okay. What I understand of the playground is that they built the adventure playground themselves. They built the things that they hmm. played on. Basically, it it was a fenced off area, quite a large area. And I used to go and get loads and loads of wood, loads of. Um, nails and hammers and equipment and things like that <laughs> for the kids to build yeah, structures. The teenagers. And younger. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, what began to happen, they all made little huts and, and their dens, really, basically. 
and then as as we got more experienced of it we 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 allocated a, a space for the under fives and made play much more supervised in those areas so when right. we actually had play schemes we would have a, a, a sort of rough fenced off area for the under fives with 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 good supervision levels so that we could actually do them and the rest of the sort of toughies and you know the the, the six to about 12 year olds used to be making their dens and things like that and then over that age then we got we got to the sort of tough teenagers i remember a sort of little gang coming to me one day saying we've been nicked for stealing and taking away cars three thursdays in a row this thursday we want to do something different have you got any suggestions and i said right okay why don't you build a tree house and so I turned a blind eye to where they were getting the equipment and they went <laughs> over the fence um, to the de- houses which were being demolished and got lo- lots of um, joist wood and good structural stuff, <laughs> heaved it over and it got loads and loads of equipment. And during the winter times when we hadn't had much to do, my helper and I had dug really deep holes and we'd actually got some telegraph poles and we put three around this dead tree they actually had the beginning of a tree house so it was a question of actually sort of building the the house and the structure and everything around this this tree and uh, they built a 30 foot some tree house wow and i mean the playground kind of and you had you had theater companies and stuff come in and do stuff didn't you at times we did, we did. Well, I mean, obviously with the connection of the Albany, there were all sorts of projects going on there. They had a theatre company, they had video projects that were going on there, they had art projects that were going on there. I, I remember two particularly very successful things that we did with theatre companies. One was a group who decided that the kids could have an archaeological dig to... Uh, rediscover dinosaurs and so basically they had loads and loads and loads of um, old bones from a butcher and we got up at the crack of dawn about seven o'clock in the morning went round this i think it's probably muddy playground burying all these bones all around around the playground and covering them up so that when the children came in at the opening of the playground uh, they could start their thing about you know what a dinosaur looked like and you know was there any possibility of them uh, sort of finding any dinosaurs obviously they had digging equipment and the kids went all around the playground digging holes and finding these bones wow, and then they had pictures of dinosaurs and each bone was sort of carefully sort of inspected now which bone might that be and then they kind of built a dinosaur. Wow, that's great. Around, around the project. And yeah, I mean, that was a really successful project, that one. Another one is when we had a group that had circus acts in it, and we had a, a fire eater and wow. acrobatics and all sorts of things. And all these kind of situations, you ended up with a great big fire in the middle and, and, and doing your baked potatoes and sausages around the... And it was a different time to be poor in as well. Mm, Like, I've seen the pictures of that playground, and I work in disadvantaged communities today, and I work in 
children's centres, which I guess are doing a similar kind of thing, although nowhere near as wide-ranging or as unhealth and safety as what you were doing. Mm. But the kids I see in my communities that I work in, you know, they all have gap clothes. You know, they all have... They all have DVD players at home. Mm. They all have terrible junk food all the time easily available to them. Not, I mean, I'm not saying that all of them eat junk food and I'm not saying that I don't meet lots of people trying to, to do something different with their life. And I'm certainly not saying that they are not poor because they are poor and they have significant social problems within their communities. But the kind of communities that you were working with that I've seen in those pictures, they literally didn't have things. Clearly, some of them are very hungry. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, some of them didn't have shoes. Exactly, some of them didn't have shoes. That's a, that is a significant detail. Yeah. yeah. And you're working in, with this community. Kind of always been easy, I, believe, I, I imagine. No, no. I mean, we had a very interesting kind of mix. We probably had the largest racial mix yeah, the pictures are of anywhere show in the country. I mean, we had Sikhs, we had uh, African, uh, we had uh, West Indian um, kids, we had um, we had uh, gypsies. Yeah. Uh, Romani people, I believe they're called now. Yes. Yes. Sorry. That's no, fine. I don't always get the politically well, you've been, correct. You've thing. been going since the sixties, and the, change, <laughs> the terms have changed everything so many times. That's why yeah. I'm actually hesitating as I speak. No, I know. Well, it it is a tricky thing. But I mean, we we would have had people from all back. We had uh, people over from Northern Ireland who'd been in the troubles. Mm. Uh, there was a particular family where, um, <laughs> and, and in fact, I I'd um, I'd worked as a social worker with the lad probably in probation can't remember it doesn't really matter there where I worked with him but I knew the family very well and I was then working with a, the tenants association had employed this uh, man who was in, who was very good at, and interested in football and they had this idea they wanted a football team and he was 19 and, and completely not in gear with these difficult kind of kids. And he was very into football and thought that if he told everybody what to do, they'd just do it. <laughs> and he was really winding this uh, Irish lad up. And I could see him getting more and more uncomfortable. And he, he'd been trained by the IRA from a very young age. And so was his first reaction when he was unhappy was actually violence. Um, he was a nice lad, um, but kind of like he, he was fighting a lot of demons. And uh, I could see him picking up this large sort of stone boulder and he had it behind his back. And I thought, like, hey, any minute now, he's going to brain my assistant. <laughs> I thought, how can I shut him up? And I kind of leapt in between the two of them and said, um, whatever his name was, could you go and do such and such and such and such? I was talking. Would you now go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of like dismissed him much to his mind. He, he hadn't, I don't think he ever knew what was going on. And then I was able to talk quietly with the lad and said, I think, I think you need to take five and go home, don't you? And I got him to go home. And it was kind of like dispersed in that kind of way. 
but there were lots of situations that a lot of people wouldn't have understood them as being difficult because it was just a sort of discipline problem. Yeah. This is an int- I mean this is a, something that's that is very much still the case. Yes. You know, if you if you have a, a little ch- a, a child who's from Afghanistan mm. or a child who's from Iran or Iraq yes. and you think that they're being trouble a, a tr- making trouble in your school uh, and, and and teachers are aware of this but the general public aren't always don't always that's think right. like this. There may be very important complicated traumatic reasons in their past in that they are Yes. Often refugees from war zones, yes. uh, certainly, in, or you know, African kids who have had very, very troubled, very troubled mm. backgrounds. Absolutely. And it's easy to think that it's a discipline problem when actually it might very well be a love problem. It may mm. very well be a, mm. the social side of it. I mean, these these two things aren't separate. They are connected, and we we, we need to address both sides you know you get people being very authoritarian you get people being very lovey lovey let's all peace and love mm. we need somewhere in the middle what i like when i hear the stories about your your time on on that adventure playground is it does seem that it was somewhere in the middle that you did rule that place to a certain extent oh with a rod of iron yes with a rod of iron i mean in fact i was criticized uh, very severely uh, by my then stepdaughter who, who thought I was far too authoritarian. Uh, because, but, of course, all these kids knew the other side of my character. <coughs> and yeah. they also knew that if they were doing something dangerous, like you say, the health and safety aspects, I mean, if they were about to sort of demolish something and it was about to fall on something, I couldn't afford the, the luxury of saying, excuse me, Johnny, would you mind not doing this? Yeah, they, um, didn't they, they burnt down the adventure <laughs> playground repeatedly, didn't they? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, we, we, we had this sort of love-hate thing that, that went on. I mean, I think the worst one was when the, uh, teenage, the white teenage boys decided to have an all-white house. And, uh, it, mind you, it was very interesting. I went in on the second or third day, and there was this uh, black kid in there. And uh, I said, oh. I said in my usual way, why is so-and-so here? He's a friend. Okay. So it wasn't quite as white as they thought it was. That's such a common thing in London racists. Yes. Like, uh, I mean, I've... Uh, People I've met in London who have been white and have been have said racial racial things will also always have some black or Asian people that they're really really nice with and they don't even consider to be black or Asian. It's insane. That's absolutely. But unfortunately, <laughs> I think after the third day of them strutting around the playground saying no blacks allowed, uh, the black kids just burnt it down. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so you just have to say moving on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess to sort of round up this first conversation, because uh, we're about time to round up the first one, I guess to, to just finish off that progression in that you, then you went, you went back to social work after that, mm. and then you worked in charities, didn't you? You worked in... It was quite a few years. I mean, I suppose I did 10 years in Kingsland. I did five years in North Wales. And it wasn't till... So 15 years of social work. Yeah, and then then I did 10 years in the voluntary organisation. That's right, and working with uh, deaf-blind people, yeah. 
Sense Midlands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sense Midlands and then Sense Cymru, was it? Yeah. That's where I'm aware that you flip-flopped between the two because I kind of was around when you were in the charity sector. Yeah. In fact, I always say that you were a social worker when we were in Cardiff, but you weren't always a social worker, were you? You were in, in Sense at the beginning and then, then you were a social worker. That's right. I think you said to me once, five years in a job. Ah, well, That's I where th- I'm I, getting confused, five years in a I th- job. I, th- I think it was when I first started doing jobs, five years in one particular job. Now, uh, it could be still social work. But it has to be a different thing. But I had to change after about five years because I got bored. Well, not necessarily bored, but I just felt that I needed more stimulus and more, you know, I needed to move my brain somehow. I know what you mean. I found that in my working life that after about five years in every job, I've been, whoa, I, once you become good at the job, yes. you're like, I can once do this job, it, I'm doing it. it well, <laughs> done it well for a year now, or two years, and yeah, then you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Need, to, need a new Moving challenge, on. which is interesting. I never thought I'd feel like that because, you know, my jobs are just my day jobs. Yeah. But even so, yeah. it's still something you're doing a significant amount of time. and yeah. you do. Feel I like mean, once you've done all the training, yeah. Uh, I mean, that becomes increasingly difficult as, as legislation puts wallops on the training in every kind of direction. Yeah, definitely. And you keep, have to keep doing it and doing it again. But, I mean, having said that, I mean, the repeating of the training is incredibly boring. You know, you, you, I mean, the first time you do uh, a first aid course might be interesting. Yeah. The second yeah. time, what? The third time, mind-blowingly Boring. Although things move so quickly oh, now, yeah. it's yeah. interesting. Like every, there will be every different things each time, but why not just do the different things? Every single time I've done an equal opportunities training oh, course, and I've done a lot of those training sh- courses, changes completely. Yeah, the terms change. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the 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 thinking on it changes so many times. Oh yeah, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Mum. Oh. This is the end of our first com- first of the three conversations. Okay. Um, but um, I guess what I ask at the end of each of these conversations is, does that, do people have anything to plug? So I guess, do you have anything to plug, I guess, within the, within the realms of what we're talking about, really, I guess, in terms of social, social services or nursing or, or charities? Well yeah. well, yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, I've recently got involved with the Save the NHS campaign. Yep. And I've been very regularly on the 38 Degrees uh, website. Me too. Uh, <laughs> and, and writing to my uh, MP and, and other people about... Say, and interestingly enough, he, he suggested maybe I want to go on a health board in, in Bristol. And I thought, well, she might consider it. Yeah. Because I, I do feel very, very strongly... And I feel that my father would be turning in his grave because he was a doctor who re- refused to go into the private sector because of his socialist ideas. Yeah. And so he was a, a badly paid doctor, really. He never actually became a consultant, even because consultants did private work. He was a conscientious objector as well, wasn't he? He was, yes. Because and of his Hippocratic oath. Yes, yes. So he, he wouldn't fight in the war. So he, and, and a CND member... Yeah. Um, very important part of his life. Um, so, so yes, he, he was very much in favour of the sort of Bevan idea, you know, started in the 40s. You know, the idea that it would be free for all. I mean, we've lost that to a certain extent already, but we've still got everyone having access to it. Yeah. And we don't have as much a postcode lottery 
uh, as there would be if we privatised. Absolutely. And also seeing the privatisation that has taken place in, in social services, I know that you need very experienced people who understand about quality. And you don't always get it. You don't always get the people who, who sign the contracts, understanding that in actual, in, in, in health and social services, it, it, it's not the cheapest service that we want. It's the cheapest quality service. And, and, and finding people with that kind of expertise, I mean, as opposed towards the end of my social work life, I was trying to actually define what quality was. And I think that will go on and on and on and on. Because actually sort of putting in words what the quality of life of a person is, has to be the most important thing that, that health and social services can do. I, 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 think I thoroughly agree. I think that was a fantastic uh, defence of the NHS and uh, <laughs> the health service in general. I'm certainly I'm categorically, personally against uh, the dismantlement of the NHS, the dismantlement of the, the welfare state and uh, this heinous attack on public services by a cabinet full of millionaires who went to Eton and Cambridge. Um, and on that, that rather bleak note, um, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>